The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, get your glider out of the cloud and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 459 with guest Michael Stiefel, recorded live Monday, June 29th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's still waiting for his super jour, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard here. Hey, Richard, how are you, man? I am well, sir. It's uh, you know, beautiful summer. Uh, the, yeah, the conference season's out. finally over. Thank God. It, it was a really long season this year. <laughs> we, I did, we did, we did uh, live shows from March to June. Actually, that last show we did with uh, Phil Hack and Scott Hanselman, mostly Scott Hanselman. Um, if you haven't listened to it, not much nutritional value there, but we sure had a lot of fun. And yeah, it's a we great show out. to listen to on a on a on a sunny afternoon when you didn't want to work anymore. And and you know, to be honest, we geeked out. I mean, it's a geeky show. Yes, and, definitely. Yeah, but uh, and and almost not safe for work, I would say. Yeah, right on the edge. Right on the edge. That's only that's Phil Hack's contribution. <laughs> he was sort of like a deer caught in the headlights in that show. He, <laughs> he just couldn't stop putting his foot in his mouth. Yeah, he was amazing, really. Yeah, yeah it's funny. I was uh, in, in the flight to leave uh, Norway, and you know, in line for the flight, and there's Phil, like standing right in front of me. No kidding. And then I'm going to get my bags when I'm when I finally landed in Philadelphia, and there's Phil. So uh, I was hacked the whole way home. Hey, you know, I've, I just want to mention before we get into Better Know Framework that I've been doing some uh, speech recognition and synthesis programming lately. Yes, I'm trying to, and, and it's really cool. You know, the stuff that's built into Vista and Windows Seven. For speech recognition is great, and if if you don't have that, you can always get the speech API. But uh, I really wanted to be able to take control, you know, because if you just use the the recognizer, the speech recognizer that comes in the framework, you share that with all the other grammars that Windows loads up, like you know, 
overlay the grid and choose a number and all of the the great stuff. So if you say something wrong, all of a sudden windows are exploding all over the place. Really? Yeah. So I found out the secret is to use the speech recognition engine class instead of the speech recognizer. And then you do it in line and uh, you have total control over the grammars that you're that you're listening for. And something tells me we're going to be having some shows on speech recognition in the immediate future. Well, it's very cool. I mean, uh, this is the first real app that I've done with it, and and I'm trying to make an application for the car so I can, as I'm driving around, I can talk to the computer. The first problem that you have there is that you don't want it to always listen, right? Right. So I, I took a little mouse, uh, you know, a very small mouse, and and use some uh, Velcro and Velcroed it to the side of my console on the in the middle between the two seats in the front, and uh, I just push the mouse button down when I want to talk, and that you know toggles a boolean or whatever. And then uh, what I use is I just set the the uh, audio input to null or set it to the current audio device depending on whether the mouse is down. So that settles that problem. But it's coming along nicely. I can say uh, play Norwegian Wood. And it'll find it in my music collection and start playing it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can say, what's the weather in Boise, Idaho? And it goes out, gets an RSS feed, and it tells me what the weather is. It's pretty cool. And here I thought it was all about the Beatles tunes. Yeah, yeah. It is cool just being able to say a song in your collection and then have it play. Anyway, let's get right back to work here and uh, get on to Better Know Framework. All right. So... Better Know Framework, of course, this little uh, section we do on the show where I shine a little light on a dark and dusty corner of the .NET framework, and uh, hopefully over time, through osmosis, you'll pick up something. Today, I'm going to be talking about um, the Microsoft.build.buildengine.engine class. Okay. So this is where the, you know, the uh, build engine, of course, Microsoft.build uh, control, and so this is a way that you can... Create projects, load projects, create solutions, do all sorts of great things with, you know, do builds, do automatic builds. And there's a great uh, example of using the engine right there. You basically uh, create a new engine. You point to the path that contains the framework CLR and the tools, which is usually Windows, Microsoft.net, Framework, V2, whatever, V3, whatever. Right. And you you can uh, ultimately... You can uh, create a file logger and set the parameters if you want a logger, and you register that. And you say engine.buildproject file, and you give it a project file name. And then you just check to see if it worked, because build project file returns a Boolean whether it worked or not. It's pretty simple, you know? Yeah, no, that's pretty straight up. Yeah, check it out. Microsoft.build.buildengine.engine. Nice. So, we got somebody talking to us today? We do indeed. Let me read you this email. Okay. Carl and Richard, I want to compliment you on a great show. I have a two-hour commute each day, and I currently listen to about a gigabyte worth of podcasts each week. And wow. .NET Rocks is at the top of my listening schedule every week. Uh, that's a little scary. Yeah, that's a lot of podcasts, but, yeah. you know, that's a lot of commuting. Yep. I was recently listening to show episode 453 with Peter Vogel, and I was a little surprised at his example of creating a generation tool to generate a class to encapsulate connection strings. Oh, right. I'm surprised not because I think this is a bad idea, but rather surprised at this example because Visual Studio already does this if you use the settings files. 
Right. Here's an excerpt from the MSDN documentation. Look, I'm doing my own, you know, better know framework bit. <laughs> Visual Studio 2005 users can add settings to their application using the project designer by adding a dot settings file to their applications. In Visual Basic, this will expose all settings in the my dot settings object. Other languages will generate a settings class, which exposes these settings. Yeah, and I might add, in Visual Basic anyway, you don't even need to add any kind of settings file. It's already there in the projects. And you just use my.settings, and then you don't even need to do any. You just create it. You just say, it's a dictionary. You just say my.settings connection string equals, yeah. And that's all there is to it. And so you know, what that begs the point, you know, why did they make this example uh, well, the email finishes nicely on this. Okay. This, at a minimum, reinforces Peter's statement that this is a good idea, but I'm curious to know if there are some additional advantages to rolling your own code generator for this task. I think, I don't know. I, I think if you asked Peter, he'd say, yeah, it was just an example. Yeah. And the, uh, obviously, the idea of an example is to show how it works, not to show, uh, you know, something that's ab- actually useful. That's what I thought, too. Okay. All right. And uh, Ron, thanks for your email. We'll be sending you a mug. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas from shows, send us an email. .net rocks at franklins.net. And by the way, I'm sorry I'm a little hoarse. I uh, played out on Saturday night down at Hannafin's, and I used a, a new geeky piece of gear that just came out. Uh, I'll just tell you briefly about it. You, you've ever heard these harmonizers where you um, you sing into them, and then they produce like a harmony above? Right. And then you can use your foot pedals to change the chord or whatever that they're playing. But this is different. You plug your guitar into it, like an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar. Oh, yeah. And then you plug a microphone into it. And based on the chord you're playing, it changes the harmonies that sing with you in real time. Dude, that's pretty geeky. It's pretty scary. (laughs) And then there's a button just to turn it on and off. So you can be playing, like, you know, singing a tune or whatever, and you want some harmonies to come in, like, so your backup chorus. Right. And you just stomp on it, and then it all of a sudden you got this beautiful three-part harmony. No kidding. Yeah. It's like 300 bucks. So this is what you were playing with at the... uh... Yeah, so I was singing my nuts off, you know, down down (laughs) in Hanfins, and uh, I sang just a little too much, and I'm a little hoarse. Oh, well. I'm pony today. I'm a little hoarse. There you go. Let's introduce our guest, Michael Stiefel, who has been on the show, I think, before he said uh, show 180 was his last time he was on. Well, the first uh, time he was on. Um, okay, first and last. Uh, right, Michael? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, we also did several DNR TVs on Workflow, but let me introduce him here. Michael Stiefel, principal of Reliable Software Incorporated, is a consultant on software architecture and development and the alignment of information technology with business goals. His current work involves distributed application development and implementation, such as software as a service, software best practices in Microsoft.net, technologies such as Windows Workflow Foundation, Windows Communication Foundation, and SQL Server, advising on IT strategy and planning, including budgeting, hiring, and growth management, including the appropriate use of agile development, and requirements analysis and project planning. Currently, his love is the cloud, and that's what we're going to talk about now. Hey, Michael, welcome back. Thanks very much. The cloud. The cloud. Yes, I see clouds. People. Never mind. Maybe the best place to start is to talk about what 
is the cloud? What is the cloud? What's and most cloud? people maybe only have heard the words Azure and cloud used in the same sentence, but the cloud as a concept is much well, bigger than that, right? Well, yes, it is. And the uh, interesting thing, of course, is that I don't know who at Microsoft Marketing thought this up, but Azure is the color, is the blue of a cloudless sky. <laughs> oh, I get it. And that's why they use terms like fabric, you know? And it, and I and I get it now, the whole windows, you know, you're looking out the window and you see Azure. It's been a plan from day one. <laughs> right. Yeah, back in the 80s, they knew. You know where we're going to end up doing. <laughs> no, no, no. When Gates said information at your fingertips, well, never mind. Let's cut that part out. <laughs> so... The way you want to think about cloud computing, at least at the start, is to think of it as utility computing. Right. The idea is that you only pay for as much computational resources as you need. So normally, if you want to host an application or you want to rent space from a provider, you have to provide the maximum amount of capability that you need. You have to buy or right. rent all the servers you need for that peak capacity. Unless right. you actually like, you know, upgrading your hardware in mid-scale. I don't well, know yeah, about you, that, but I don't like that. We will come back to that issue, actually. That's a very important issue. I, I but, personally, I don't know about you, but uh, I tend to avoid those situations. So the idea with, with utility computing, much like the usual analogy with electric power is no one builds their own generators anymore. No one generates their own electric power. The idea is you get it from a, a utility, you buy what you need, and you don't have to maintain enough generators for peak capacity as people used to do in, you know, the, in the late uh, 19th century when they were manufacturing stuff. So there are three classes of vendors that you might think of out there. There is sort of the Google or Force.com class of vendors, there is the Amazon class of vendors, and there is the Microsoft class of vendors. Yeah. The Google, you know, force.com style of vendors is that you program to a particular API. In other words, when you build an app on Google App Engine, you're using the same infrastructure that Google has used for their own apps. And that's very powerful because Google can do failover for you. They can do recovery for you, you know, because they know what your app is. Right. The downside of that is you're programming to a relatively restrictive programming model, the Google App Engine. And, and migrating existing apps is going to be hard. Like, there's, there's barriers there. Absolutely. The flip side of that is the Amazon model, which basically you get a VM. You can do whatever you like with that VM. But on the other hand, Amazon can do nothing for you in terms of failover or, or um, reliability because they know nothing about your app. Now, you can go to third parties who will do that for you, but it's your responsibility. Right. right. And, and Microsoft tries to come in the middle by using metadata and health status monitoring to try to get enough information about your app so they can do things for you. Okay. What kinds of things? Well, failover, recovery, scale. Yeah. So this, this is what you're saying sets apart Azure from Google and Amazon. Well, Google, yeah. Well, they, in other words, because you're programming against Microsoft.net in Amazon, you can move your app 
off the cloud much more easily than you could off Google. Yeah, or okay. move it onto the cloud as well? Like I could take an existing app and migrate right. it to Azure? Uh, right. You can go both ways. Okay. You can certainly do that in Amazon because you have a virtual machine, and it's easy to get yeah. off. Yeah, you run your virtual machine wherever you want. Right. So, so the idea is with Microsoft, you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. Okay. And, and it's an interesting perception of it because I, I thought it was very much its own development model as well. Well, it is, and and the that comes to when you really want to leverage the power of the cloud, is yeah. that then it does have a very different development model. In fact, when people ask me the question, should they go to the cloud, the first question I ask them is, do you have a plan for getting off the cloud? Okay. Huh. Because it, the, cl- the, the fundamental reason for going to the cloud is economic. Yeah, I mean, when we were talking about the uh, of this in development in a downturn, that was one of the first suggestions that we heard that people take advantage of is uh, you're starting a project, use the cloud, because it's well, going to ultimately be cheaper, in the, especially in the startup. Yes, and startups, and also I've heard, talk to people in large companies, if you're a departmental manager and you want to have a project and you don't want to deal with your centralized um, you know, IT infrastructure. Right. You, within a departmental budget, you can rent space in the cloud. Yeah. And get started. So it's it's not only for the startups; it's also for you know small companies and small business units. In fact, I think the first people to move to the cloud are going to be the small and mid-sized businesses. I, and I find it interesting that we're at this point where the adversarial relationship between a business unit and its IT department is that I'd rather not use my own people. I'm going to go, you know, rent service elsewhere. That's correct. It's it, That's not good. Well, it's it, it's not good. But on the other hand, I mean, it, it, uh, you know, and that's a whole show in of itself. But I think the important thing right now is it's, cloud computing is a delivery mechanism. It's okay. the drivers are economic. Um, it, as, as Carl mentioned earlier, you don't want, if you're a small company, you don't want to maintain the latest fixes, upgrade your hardware, deal with service packs, and it's just a headache you don't want to have. And at this point, I think we should interject that, and if you want to focus in now on Azure, is when you talk about Azure, you're really talking about three things at once, and they're separate, and we have to distinguish between them. Okay. Okay. First of all, there is the Azure platform itself. This is the so-called operating system in the cloud. Right. Where you have the blobs and the queues and the web role and the worker role, where you actually program against this, this model. Then you have the Azure services, SQL Server in the cloud, the identity services, the service bus. These are services that you can use within a cloud app, or not a cloud app. In fact, that's one of the big myths about cloud, is that cloud is not an all-or-nothing proposition. You can have part of your app in the cloud and part of your app not in the cloud. Right. And then there's a third strata where you're actually buying apps that run in the cloud, hosted exchange and, of course, salesforce.com and all that, that ilk of app. So when you really talk about cloud, you have to be very careful about what you're talking about. So now I where where are we right now? We have a community technology preview of that Azure, right? And you really consider this like an operating system, don't you, when you work when, with it? When when you are programming at that lowest level against the Azure platform, yes, you think about an operating system. However, if I want to use SQL Server in the cloud, 
I may have an app that runs on my desktop or in my data center, mm. but I'm accessing a, a database that's in the cloud. Now, the other thing is, it's, of course, free to mess around with right now, but has Microsoft come out with any kind of pricing model? Do we have any idea what it's going to look like? No, we don't. And that is, of course, the shoe that is going to be dropped. I mean, there are two issues, and you've hit on both of them. You've hit on one of them. There's the cost issue, and then there's the SLA, the reliability and availability and the cost of not being available. Right. If you look at Amazon, I mean, they do have, for some of their services, an SLA. It's not really very convincing SLA. Hmm. Everybody's waiting for Microsoft to announce a, what the pricing model is, and what the SLA is going to be. Right. I'm not, and, I'm not as concerned about the SLA. I mean... Uh, I would be. It depends on how mission-critical your app is. Well, I suppose so, but... Okay. Now, mean, the big issue here is that this is where you get into this whole ASP model, or even ISP model, right? Where when the server goes down, what's your recourse? And right. I'm saying when, because it's gonna. They right. already have. I mean, Amazon had what an eighteen-hour outage. That's right. Yeah. Well, and then and then there was the famous Google Asia scandal. <laughs> right. Tell us about it, that. Well, basically, what happened was that somebody, um, whether it was a mistake or exactly what the the motivating factor was, whether it was a routine maintenance or development effort, they didn't say, is somebody misconfigured the routers to send more traffic to Asia, effectively oh. overloading the Asia servers. And once that traffic got blocked, traffic through them got stalled and eventually caused, an, it caused the outage. I didn't hear about that. That's, that's not good. So, I mean, there, there are issues here. When we were at the PDC and we were looking, and I, I asked the question about storage, you know, that because it, Azure wasn't really positioned as a content delivery network, but now there's something called Windows Azure Storage Service. What is that? Well, it, actually, the, when you talk about this very interesting question, when you talk about storage on Azure, you have to distinguish between two different types of storage. One is the tables that are in the Azure platform. Yeah. The next is SQL data services, which is going to be SQL Server in the, cl- in the sky, in the yeah, cloud, right. which is essentially a, fu- a, a pretty full, not completely um, duplicate, but a pretty full implementation of, of, of SQL Server. Okay. And so when you talk about data storage, you have to distinguish and talk about which one you're using, and they are very different Models. In fact, at, at DevTeach, I gave a talk about, you know, does the relational database make sense in the cloud? Hmm. Because when you start to think about these things, um, you know, they, they are very, very different models. Yeah. And if, if, if you want, I mean, you, see, what comes about is the fact that latency and bandwidth are real issues. I mean, right. if, if you do a calculation... Let's say I have a server in Boston, and I have a client in Japan, in Tokyo. If you just take the speed of light in a fiber and do the calculation, assume a great circle, the simplest route possible between Boston and and, and Tokyo, which is, of course, not the route that the the cable actually takes, is a ping takes about 100... 150 milliseconds. Yeah. The actual number is higher, 
you know, yes. two or three hundred milliseconds. Yes, it is. So if I have a web site and I want to put up five to ten images, that's going to take a second to go back and forth. Yeah, not even counting about how long it takes to move the data, but just the round trips. That's correct. So latency is real. The other reality is that bandwidth is expensive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just upgraded my, uh, you know, local Verizon package. I now get uh, seven megabytes up, about one megabyte down a second. But if mm-hmm. you go to countries like, uh, you know, Australia or Japan or, or different countries, bandwidth is not necessarily free. And, and latency and bandwidth are not the same thing, of course. I, no. I like to the example I like to use is thinking about of digging out a ditch. I can have a shovel. You know, how big my shovel is, is my bandwidth. Right. How fast I can dig is my latency. <laughs> and I can have a, the biggest shovel in the world right. with an infinite size, but if it still takes me time to shovel... That's, it's, I'm not going to get instantaneously data, data access. Right. So this leads one to start to realize that if you want to have highly available systems, you may have to partition your data to be closer to where you, your customers are. And so the Azure data services, data centers are distributed, right? Well, before we get even to that, this leads to something that's called the CAP theorem. I don't know if you're familiar with this at all, but this was a conjecture originally put forth by Eric Brewer of Inktomi a number of years ago and su- su- subsequently proved by two people at MIT, so now it's the CAP theorem, that essentially says you have three variables to think about, consistency, availability, and partitioning, and you can have only two of the three. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like uh, when somebody asks you for an estimate, uh, yeah. good, right. fast, and cheap, pick any two. Right. right. So our classic way of thinking about data is we have our SQL server, we have transactional semantics, because we have one SQL server. And when I talk about one SQL server, now I'm talking about a cluster. In other words, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, a cluster is included here when I say right. a single SQL server. So. We're thinking of a model because everything is in one place. You can have consistency and availability. However, when you start to partition the data, then you have to ask yourself, do I want availability or do I want consistency? And you see that this is going to come down depending on your type of app you have. Yeah, right. Absolutely. For example, take... um, Amazon, this is a class example that, that everybody likes to use. When you go to order a book, the number of books that you have, they tell you are available, is not accurate. That's why it takes you, you know, you have to get an email saying you actually got the book. Right. Because it's a cached value. If they consistently had updated that value, they could not get the scalability to make sure that things, your, your shopping basket... State current. Mm-hmm. Take Flickr, for example. The record, a comment that you make, is stored with the commenter and commentee record. So that if you need um, to get to the commenter or the commentee, you can get it very, very quickly, and you don't have to go and fetch it from one to the other for highly availability. Now, in both cases that I've just cited now, um, 
it's okay to have a stale value for the number of books because eventually you'll come up with the right answer. Yeah, in the end, do you really need to know more than they have more than one? Right. And, and this leads to the whole idea that in this world of highly available partition software, you move to a model of you will eventually be consistent. You don't have to be immediately consistent. Right. And, and this is what Pat Helen calls a world of eventual consistency or ask the question, what's the cost of an apology? <laughs> No, it's a good one. That's a good way. I've had this experience with Expedia. You know, you you find the flight you want. You say, "Okay, book it," and that's when they come back and go, "Yeah, we didn't actually have that flight." So, right, exactly. (laughs) Sorry about that. Here's another one that's twice as much. Right, because if you went and got a lock on that database record for the for the duration of your query, you could never scale. Yeah, you could. That's right. I mean, two phase commit works if you have infinite time. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't, if, if you want to have available data, you don't have, and even semi available data, you don't have infinite time. So therefore, you have to deal with these realities of, and if you think about this, this is how actually people do business. No, it really right? is. You're right. Yeah, I mean, we fostered this myth over the past 20 or 30 years, that we want the state of the software to accurately represent the state of the business at all times. Right. Yeah. And in reality, that never happens that way. That's right. I mean, you can see this. I mean, why do we have this big deal about the closing of the quarter? Because the people ship things and they haven't paid for them yet. We fax things. People have to get commitments. Yeah, it's yeah. a reconciliation. It's a reconciliation. So if you really want software to be reflective of the way business actually gets done, we have to loosen some of our myths and deal with some, some difficulty. Now, of course, this is a very different world, and this is where you get the differences in the SQL data services and the tables. I mean, you know, you Amazon SimpleDB, Google Bigtable, the tables are designed for this highly available, very simple approach to data. Yeah. There's no schema. You can put things in and out. And there are advantages, of course, and disadvantages to all these things. But you really have to think very differently about when you start to put data in the cloud. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whose support this show would not be possible. Hey, how many times have you drowned into endless CSS classes just to change the color of a single element of your application UI? How many times have you had to ask your designer to create custom skins so that your UI controls match your company's brand identity? It's time to turn to a new page. Telerik has launched the Visual Style Builder for ASP.NET AJAX, an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point and click. Colorizing a complete skin at once has never been easier. Just move the color slider and all elements will shift their color spectrum accordingly. That's cool. If the colorization is not enough, you can fine-tune individual elements to perfection. Whether you want to change fonts and sizes, margins and padding, background colors, or just about any style property, it's all easy and intuitive 
through the Visual Style Builder's graphical interface. It sounds incredible. So let's go and check it out at stylebuilder.telerik.com. Hey, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So now getting back to my original question, which is what is this data storage thing? Does And you, you said there's two types of data storage. My reason, the reason I asked that question is because we're, we're always looking for ways that we can improve the scale of uh, .NET Rocks downloads. Now we're talking about MP3 files. And if I could find a nice CDN that works well and is cheap enough and has the reporting that I need, because that's what I really need. I need to know how many people downloaded this show this month. And I need to know that for every show that we that we put out there. Um, and and uh, the Microsoft people said Azure wasn't at the at the PDC really going to be a content delivery network. What you know, it seems like we're really approaching that. Well, I mean, you, you raise an interesting question because when you're talking about data in the cloud, especially partitioning data, you have this thing which is between read-only and writable data. Right. Okay. Your your data of your shows is is done. It's like the catalog of last month's prices. Yeah, it's or, read-only or, for everybody else. Right, or yesterday's yeah. New York Times. It isn't changing. So you can partition that data however you want. And you could conceivably use, I mean, the blobs inside of Windows Azure to deliver that content network. Now, you'd have to write that software. Now, what I don't know is enough about Windows Live to know right. whether that would work for you. So that's a Windows Live service, the, the, the storage? No, no. Windows. Li- the idea behind Windows Live is to reconcile data among lots of devices in your in your world in your life. So they have this thing called uh, simple data storage services, blobs, tables, and queues hosted in the cloud close to your computation. Yes. Authenticated access and triple replication to help keep your data safe. Easy access to data with REST interfaces available remotely to and from the data center. And they also do. Um, they also do logging, so they, they say that they're, uh, you know, you, you can look at extensive logs about access. So uh, I'm just, you know, just looking for some information on that. There, there are um, now Google and Amazon aren't the only content delivery networks out there. In fact, S3 arguably is, you know, this is what I'm saying. What is what is the difference between like storage on S3 and a and a content delivery network that claims that's exactly what it does, like Akamai. Like, like is, it, is it a matter of bandwidth? Like, Well, Akamai also does caching. Well, these content delivery networks, you know, make available video and audio, which are typically large files on a massive scale all, all over the world. Well, my question is, you know, is, is Azure ready for that? No it's, no, it's not ready for that. Because right now, Azure is a very simple... Or when I wouldn't say simple is the right word. It's a it's an operating platform. It's not a content delivery network. Okay. Well, and the, and the main thing being, from my experience dealing with content delivery networks, I mean, Akamai's got servers everywhere. That's correct. And, and Azure's not there yet. I think they have one or two data centers, and they're talking about maybe half a dozen in the immediate future. Yes, that is correct. So they've not really built it out to be right. A content and delivery there's network. also some question 
about your affinities between the program you write and the data center. Right. So that when you specify an application, you specify a certain affinity with a certain data center. So it's not clear how you're actually partitioning among, you know, among the various data centers is going to work right now. So I, I see CDN as, um, you know, where, where you have, like you said, something that's done, that's finished, a blob that you want to distribute, whereas uh, Azure is, is really a platform for running apps. Right, and, at, at the Azure platform level, yes. Yes, yes. And I, we're actually, just as an aside, looking at one called SimpleCDN, SimpleCDN.com, which says that they uh, will host your stuff all over the world for as cheap as 3.9 cents per gigabyte. Yes. Think about that. It's pretty cheap. That's for, yeah. That's pretty pretty. And who are they cheap. running on? Yeah, well, I don't know anything about it yet. But, uh, but yeah, so th- this affinity question though is a good one because as soon as you start having a user connect to a particular data center, they pretty much have to stay stuck to that data center. Oh yeah. But I mean, this is again the question is you have to remember now we're at the beginning right. of a long process of how the cloud computing is. Mm, right. In other words, this is the same thing you know with the internet or XML or any one of these things where you go through this phase of hype, yeah, overselling, then people sort of go into quiescent phase and start to work, and then you get real things. Then you get the reality, exactly. Right. It's kind of like waiting for version 3 of anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you think of the dot-com boom and crash, a lot of the better ideas that people talked about then are happening now. Right, yeah. This, this is sort of what I call the 210 rule. People overestimate what can be done in two years and underestimate what can be done in ten. <laughs> That's neat. It's true. And, That's very true. I can think of several examples. And if you think of this really carefully, it's going to be 30 or 40 years before cloud computing really moves to this utility computing model. Well, because aren't you underestimating what can be done in ten years? Well, because you, there's also social infrastructure change that has to happen. Yeah. Because when you talk, think about cloud computing, you're thinking about monopolies. Because if you think about what the economies of scale are and the amount of money that you need to run these data centers and the nearness to internet, the internet backbone that you have to have and the need for cheap electric power and the need for cooling capacity nearby, there are not so many possible sites. And there are not so, mu- so many vendors can do this. Well, like you said, utility computing implies a utility. That is correct. Right. And That's then right. you start to think about the issue that I thought you'd bring up, is what about my security of my data in the cloud? Oh, we don't even think about security. We're developers, you know? Yeah, who cares? Who cares about <laughs> Put security? Put a lock on security it. is just a pain in my ass I have to deal with. <laughs> well, ask the, ask the customers of Madoff about that. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's just common sense, right? Right. So if you want to have security in the cloud, you're really going to have to move to a regulated utility model. I mean, think of the following scenario. All right? You have your data in a cloud provider. The cloud provider goes bankrupt. Someone seizes the machines as collateral for the debt. What happens to your software, your data? You're going to need an FDIC, so to speak, for the cloud computing industry. 
Well, and you didn't go bankrupt. It's the other guy that went bankrupt. Well, and I and I now think about this recent FBI incident where the FBI seized the machines of a data center, including the guy who was being investigated, but everybody else in the data center. Mm. That is correct. So this is why, for example, you have things like the SPIC, so that if your, if let's say Fidelity Investments goes bankrupt, you're insured up to five hundred thousand dollars or whatever the right. current amount is. Yeah. So we're going to need that sort of social and political infrastructure in order to make cloud computing a reality. Are we so, on a pendulum swing here, Michael? Where right now outsourcing everything, including your computers, is cool. Yes. And we're about to get our ass kicked for it, and it's going to go the other way. Absolutely. If you're smart, you'll keep your servers I mean, under your desk. One, one of the things that's missing is, is redundancy. For example, I'm old enough to remember the 1965 blackout in the Northeast United States. Right. And I remember that in spite of the blackout, you could still make phone calls. Yeah. Not that we had cell phones in those days, but the, <laughs> but the fact is that the... The phone was on a separate power network from the electric utility. Yeah. So think what happens now if you have a blackout. Sure, your cell phone can run for as long as it still has power. Yeah, but the tower is down, so you're screwed. The tower is down, and when you run out of power, you can't talk anymore. Right. In fact... I found out, because I'm, I was thinking to do a blog post about this, that that blackout was caused by the same type of error that caused the Google Asia outage. Essentially, both were configuration errors. Somebody in 1965 had installed a um, transmission protective relay incorrectly. Huh. So right. the, the safety relay, which is supposed to trip, when it exceeds the capacity of the line, was set too low. So that caused power requests to flow to, to parts of the network and essentially overwhelm the network. But that was about the same... Th- you know, the 2003 blackout, oddly enough, in the Northeast, was about the same thing as well. Yes. In the end, it comes down to people making mistakes. Yes, but, but the question is, these are configuration problems. Yeah. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, without redundancy... This is a question. I mean, this is, this is the problem with, you know, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket and watch that basket very closely. Yeah. Which is something that people certainly have not thought about very much, which is another reason why you want to go to the regulated utility model, because these are natural monopolies. And it, it, the, the other thing and the other difficulty is that, and this again goes to think about data in the cloud, think about redundancy is, People make this analogy with the electric utility, and it's a useful analogy to a point, but it really breaks down. Because an electron is an electron. If, I, if someone steals your power, you can get another electron to take its place. Right. If, if one electric utility is overwhelmed, they can get electrons from someplace else. But if someone steals your data, my data is not good enough to take its place. Yeah. And the data, of course, has latency to it and relationship to other data, because you need data now and its relationships to other things. So we're really going to have to think very, very carefully about what this cloud computing metaphor is before it really fulfills the promise. But that being said, there are enormous 
targets of opportunity, and that's what companies have to look for right now in the cloud, which makes both economics sense. I mean, think of, here's another very simple example. Suppose you're in the biotech industry and you do want to do calculations about the genome or, or think of any grid computing application or any kind of massively parallel computation. The cloud is a natural for that. Yes. But you know, you're inching towards something here, Michael, that I don't even think we're willing to do outside of cloud computing, which is guaranteed computing, that I'm guaranteed to be up, guaranteed the app will work, and that there are consequences when those things don't happen. And and But that's exactly what happens if you think about water, the, the water utility or the electric utility. I don't think that's true. You know, the power company protects itself legally. We recently had an incident here in, in the lower mainland in, in British Columbia where they, they think it was a lightning strike. It might have been a tree down, but a whole bunch of electrical equipment, TVs and things got fried in a neighborhood. And the, the, the local power company was quick to pound out. We're not liable for your damage. Just our own. We'll fix your wires, but your blown equipment, that's your problem. Call your insurance company. And, and if you think about it from a social perspective, that makes sense. Yeah. Because, but but the, the, what you're getting at, and you're absolutely right, is that this is a social consensus that has evolved over the years, and the same thing is going to happen. I mean, for example, I ha- you know, if you have an application, I mean, if, you, if you're running, let's, let's go again, if you're running emergency services, 911 services. Right or a hospital, you're still going to have backup generators. Yes. If I'm building a distributed app, and I do have a client who's actually in this, in this situation, where you, the Internet going down is not acceptable, you still have to have a local app. This is why rich clients are not going away Right. in this world. This is why Microsoft talks about software plus services, because I do not believe in a world of absolute guaranteed connectivity. Forget about the cloud. Just talking about access to the Internet. Mm-hmm. You're going to have outages. There are going to be places where you aren't going to have it, or the, the, the expense of going up to a satellite phone is going to be so expensive. I mean, maybe in 50 years it won't be that way, but certainly within our lifetime we're going to have to deal with this issue. We're yeah. going to have to deal with synchronization and things out of sync and just having local computation, that, you know, power that can work if you lose your connection to the, to, to the internet or your cloud provider. So speaking of things that you can do there, uh, Azure also includes access to live services like mesh and identity and directory services. And, and now you're talking about that second level of identity yeah. services. For example, if I'm writing an app, I can, use, again, a non Azure platform app, I can use the identity services or the service bus without using the Azure platform. Right, of course. Yeah, of course. But what it's saying, of course, is your Azure app has access to all of those things, cloud or no cloud. That's right. But they also provide um, SharePoint services? What's that? I mean, in the future, I guess, they're well, supposed you can, you to can have... buy hosted SharePoint today. Right. And so the SharePoint services, just like the Exchange services are a way of you, if you know, you can write your own app based on these services. When you buy hosted Exchange, yeah. you're getting Exchange app in the cloud. All right, here's, an, here's one for you, man. I don't know if you're going to uh, know the answer to this, but can you run PHP in Azure? 
I don't know the answer to that, but Microsoft has said that you'll be able to use non-.NET languages. I don't know whether they'll run in the cloud. I mean, unmanaged code will run in the cloud. Oh, sure. I I mean some other, you know, non-ASP.NET thing. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, and I mean nobody else is offering that anyway. I don't think that's. I'm trying to balance here. What's what? Did, what are we trying to communicate here? Is what's the key issue? Look, guys, I just binged this, <laughs> and I came up with phpazure.codeplex.com. Nice. PHP SDK for Windows Azure. Okay. So I guess it's not a Microsoft thing, but there is a, uh, but there is a project out there on Codeplex. Right. Interesting. And I guess it's no different than hosting PHP in an ASP.NET environment as well, perhaps. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I haven't read it, so. But, you know, I hear those questions, um, uh, especially nowadays. People are asking, you know, what if I don't want to, you know, what if I want to use the service, but I don't necessarily want to use the Microsoft platform? Well, I mean, the service depends on what you mean by the service. If you're talking about SQL Server in the cloud, I mean, you don't have, you know, you could, or, or, um, you know, using blobs or queues. I mean, you can use a REST interface to get at your tables. Sure. Right. So it means what do I don't want to use the platform? You have to be careful about what you mean by that. Right. So we're we're talking about the the services and the platform, and the two are different, correct? Yes. Yeah, they are different. And in the platform, you can be using the the data services without actually having to write an app on top of of um, Azure. Sure. Sure. So what is the showstopper here for cloud? Is Because I don't think there's that much resistance from developers. I think the resistance has got to be the business owner and the IT guys. Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, the resistance from the, cloud, from the developer is you, the developers have to realize that they're moving into a world they don't understand. Well, yeah, but that's par for the course for a developer. I think the real issue is control. I think developers are essentially control freaks. And, you know, if they can't walk over to the box and press the button... You know, then they get a little a, a little uh, nervous because you're you're putting you, you know you're putting those things in somebody else's hands. Well, but perhaps. in any sensible organization, no developer is going to have access to that data center. No, that, sure, but they can walk to the IT department and say, you know, I need this here and that there. Well, I yeah, mean, then all but, the IT department says is no. All right, well, well that's I could be an wrong. Interesting question. You see, when you go to to Azure, there is no IT. De- you know, there is no um, account, you know, service account that you log into, you don't even know which machine or thread your app is running on. Right, and I guess it doesn't matter. So maybe it does, maybe it isn't. Maybe you have more control. Hmm. Well, it depends. It, you know, if you trust Microsoft to have better security, or, or Google, or Amazon, or, you know, Salesforce.com, or whoever your, your, your cloud provider you're talking about, is to secure the data center better than you can, then maybe you feel more comfortable. Well, this gets back to your original point, Michael, that the small and medium business is more likely to adopt this. Yes. And for no other reason than they do have a tough time running that infrastructure. Yes, absolutely. And they can't afford, if they, if they have a limited budget, they much rather hire developers to write business apps than to hire people who are going to keep track of the latest, you know, uh, service, se- pack. server, service packs and upgrade things for security and all that. Right. 
Well, I guess then the thing is we just have to wait and see what the pricing model is to determine whether it's going to be economically feasible. The only thing we can do now is sort of get our feet wet with Azure and and get comfortable with programming on the cloud um, in case that turns out to be a viable option in the future. But since we don't know what it's going to cost, we can't really assess whether or not we're going to use this in the real world. Right. You, you don't know what it's going to cost, and you don't know what the SLA is. And you have to think about, also, Microsoft is going to have to be very serious about this. Because with Google and Amazon, what they're doing is they're selling excess capacity right. that they, ha- they need anyway. I mean, with Google, I'm not quite sure because they're building data centers. And, of course, I'm, I'm, you know, Richard, this is a fascinating thing from your point of view because you realize they, you know, the way they bring these containers with yeah. servers inside them, just stick the container in and hook it up. Yeah, power, data, water, and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, if your listeners are interested, I think it was IEEE Spectrum in February of this year had a very interesting article about how they actually can do this. The thing that's cool about the the um, the container model is that they don't service them. They you never open them. That's right. They run them till ten percent of the gear in it has failed, and then they ship it out and put a new one in, and then there's the company rehabilitates the container. Yes. This is hmm. componentization taken to the to the extreme. The nth degree. But the but to come back to the point that I was trying to make is Microsoft is building these data centers specifically for the cloud slash utility model. So they they're going to have to offer a real SLA and a real cost model. But this is not the product that Ray Ozzy sold as a PDC. Ray said hey, we've got all these different web apps, the MSNs and these big web properties and so forth. They've all got their own infrastructure, and that's stupid. We should be using a common infrastructure across them all. So my question is, when is that going to happen? I want to see Microsoft apps, Microsoft's core products running on this infrastructure. And maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't know the answer to that question. I think if they were, they'd be screaming it to the high hills. But I also think the guy who owns, you know, MSN, when told, hey, you need to migrate to the cloud, he said, no freaking way. (laughs) You're not making me use that first. You know, change is good. You go first. Right. (laughs) So, you know, there's some really key battles here of seeing Microsoft use their own product. That's the best proof. You know, when they start moving their major products onto it, I'll believe. I, I can buy what Amazon's doing. This is the infrastructure they already use, and so they'll sell the excess, generate a little revenue. Cool. That, I want Microsoft to do the same thing. Right, and, and I, I agree with you, but the point that I was trying to make was that this means they're going to have to offer a real SLA and a real... Yep. An SLA with consequences. Yeah, with real consequences, but... Th- I worry that we don't even do this in regular development models right now. Nobody takes responsibility for the app being down. Well, I have a client that they take very seriously what happens when the app goes down. But it gets back to what are the consequences? Who's responsible? That's the question, Richard. Well, they have their own data center right now. Right. So they're taking their own responsibility. I'm saying nobody externally will take responsibility for your app. Well, I don't know what ha- well because it depends on the nature of an app. For example, suppose right. you're in you're in Salesforce, and I don't know a heck of a lot of details about the Salesforce SLA. But if your CRM app is down for an hour, that's very different than the consequences 
of you know an emergency service or Flickr being dead. See, if I can't get my Flickr photo, yeah, yeah. Or nobody's going to die right no now deal. to print my Flickr photo. So what? I'll do it in an hour. Yeah. If I can't, on the other hand, get to my medical data, that's a very different story. Yes. So what probably will happen is the first things that will migrate to the cloud will be, you know, the flickers, the Facebooks, the, you know, the apps that do not have high reliability. We'll start to figure out, and developers will start to figure out the problem. I mean, look at eBay. I mean, a very interesting thing that you can do for people to find out more information is Google Randy Shoup eBay and get um, – they have a PDF out there uh, that talks about eBay's migration of their data storage from, you know, what was built in Peter Odemeyer's, you know, basement in a weekend. Mm-hmm originally back when, to what their data center was and how they moved to this, um, you know, world where the cap theorem matters for them. Yeah, right. Well, Michael, we're just about down to the end of the show. Is there anything that we didn't cover that we can cover in just a couple minutes? Um, I think we've more or less covered uh, most everything. I mean, really, I guess the thing to, to, to emphasize is that... This idea of cloud computing is going to be a gradual process. It's not going to be something that happens overnight. But we're going to have to change our way of thinking about apps if we put them in the cloud. Certainly will. And uh, I can't wait to see what the uh, pricing model is going to be for this. Uh, I, I can imagine that it's going to have to be very competitive with what's already out there. But competition is a good thing. We shall see. Thank you, Michael. It's been fascinating, and as always, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Same here. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.